In C.S. Lewis's well-known The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a conversation about Aslan, the Christ figure of the story, between a young girl named Susan and a resident of Narnia named Mr. Beaver. And it goes like, many of you have probably heard this before, but it goes like this. Aslan is the lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course, the message that Lewis is conveying about Christianity and about following Jesus is something like, who said it was going to be safe? Of all people, Lewis would know. In his stubborn journey to Christianity, he faced two problems that collided head-on with one another. Christianity was becoming, as he explored Christianity, it was becoming more and more reasonable, more and more rational to his mind. Through Christianity, he understood himself and the world in a way that frankly made more sense than any other explanations of human nature or of the world. And yet, in spite of this, he did not want to become a Christian. He knew good and well that he could not become a Christian and remain the master of his own destiny, the captain of his own ship. He knew that Christianity demands total surrender. So as he was on this long journey towards coming to faith, he first went from atheism to theism and then from theism to Christianity, and as he was on this long, reluctant journey, he wrote at one point of himself that I must be the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And Luke 16, 14 to 31 confronts head-on any notions we have of a safe Jesus. What I'm going to argue from you, for you from this text is that the righteous hardness of Jesus actually gives the humbling our hearts need. Let me say that again. The righteous hardness of Jesus gives the humbling that our hearts need. Now, I, I use the word righteous there, the righteous hardness of Jesus, because I do not want to give any impression that the difficult demands of Jesus for those who would follow after him, I don't want to give any impression that those are unjust or that Jesus is cruel in the demands that he makes for those who would follow after him. Yes, he does have a way of shattering the manageable expectations that we would place for him in our lives. He does not fit into any boxes that we would want to craft and put him into. But that's because he is good and he is the king, I tell you. So I invite you to follow along as I read from Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter in verse 31. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he write its truths on our hearts. I don't know if you were counting, but as I made it, as I read through this passage, I counted a number of interesting topics. Wealth and riches, divorce and marriage, hell, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Well, we are journeying through the gospel of Luke, and this is where we find ourselves today. Jesus with a hard word for our hearts. And that's the first point that we see in this passage. You see, contextually, Jesus has spoken to what his disciples understand about a life spent following Jesus. Previously, if you were to look back at the first part of chapter 16, he's talking to his disciples about how their understanding of money um, um, should be informed by their devotion and their discipleship in following him. Well, now the Pharisees, as if right on cue, the Pharisees, they were this outwardly virtuous, noble people who were highly respected amongst uh, amongst the Jewish uh, populace. Right on cue, it's like they can't help themselves. This young revolutionary Jesus keeps stirring up the crowds, and they hear him talking about money. And so verse 14 tells us the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they did what? They ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Here's what Jesus is doing. If if you're familiar with the movie The Sixth Sense, it was released in 1999. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I think if you haven't seen it in 24 years, I would have that right, and you can't get mad at me. But in in the movie, um, Bruce Willis plays a psychologist who's working with a young boy who claims that he can see and speak to dead people. 
And so the whole movie is operating along this line or this trajectory. And then you reach the end of the story, and I'm not going to say any more, but there's a dramatic plot twist that fundamentally changes how you understand the, the movie as you just saw it. This is what Jesus regularly, repeatedly does as people try to get a grasp on what it means to follow him. They start to build up an idea of what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, or they start to get an idea or, or, or they craft in their own mind what true and right and good spirituality looks like. But Jesus regularly comes in and he reverses or turns upside down the notions of what we think a healthy, right, God-honoring spirituality or Christianity looks like. So the Pharisees, they're publicly visible. They're evidently, they're, they're, they're before the whole world, they are pious. They participate in worship at the temple. They're faithful in sacrifices and offering. They are never caught in moral scandal. They seemingly pass the test. But Jesus takes us to this dramatic twist where he says to them, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There's the plot twist. He says, your prestige, your image, it's a monument to nothing more than your self-righteousness. And it's an abomination before God. And he goes on in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. We need to do a little work on the history of Israel here. Because you see this reference to the law and to the prophets. This encapsulates much of what we have as the Old Testament. See, the people of Israel were a set-apart people by God. Eventually, they had to journey at, at, through the end of the book of Genesis. They had to journey to uh, uh, Egypt to escape famine, where God graciously provided for them. But then the book of Exodus picks up some 400 years after Israel journeyed there, and there are vast, numerous people now. But the people of Egypt aren't real fans of the people of Israel anymore. And so then that presents conflict and eventually the plagues and the people are forced or they're rushed out of, of Egypt and you have the miraculous deliverance through the Red Sea. God redeems and rescues his people. At the heart of that, you have the Passover where God passes over his people in judgment. And then as they journey in the wilderness, as they are preparing to take residence in the land that God has prepared for them, he gives them his law. Eventually they would grow as a people and they would be full of many fits and stops and starts and, and rebellion and worship and glorification of God and turning away from God. And God would regularly throughout the course of their history send prophets that would serve to rebuke, to warn, to point them back on the path that they must go. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets served you, now the kingdom of God has come. And everyone forces his way into it, as verse 16 says. See, with the arrival of Jesus, he, he brings about, he ushers in this kingdom of God where people are moving with haste to enter in. In some cases, they're being compelled in. They're being herded in. But the Pharisees are off to the side saying, we don't need this. We won't, we won't submit to this. To this Jesus with his radical demands. But the message of Jesus and the kingdom of God, you notice there in verses 16 and 17, Jesus is not holding these in contrast to one another. 
He's not saying the law and the prophets served a good purpose or a decent purpose. They kind of held you over, but now the kingdom of God is here. No, what's he say at the end of verse 17? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus' arrival, he fulfills the law, and he reveals how, 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 how he testifies to the validity of the law and the prophets. And so why do the Pharisees have no use for Jesus if they're big Old Testament guys? If they try to keep the law, if they think your, your, your righteousness can be earned by, by, by what you do in keeping, the, in keeping the Ten Commandments or obeying all that God has laid out before you, well, the answer actually rests in what we see in verse 18. Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, I want to pause and step back here. Look at this passage. You're, 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 we've read it together. We're looking at it. Doesn't verse 18 stick out like a sore thumb? It's not in the context of like a, a long list of laws that Jesus is giving. You have right before it, Jesus in this conversation with uh, Pharisees, right before that you have him instructing disciples on how to view and understand their relationship to money. Coming immediately after this, he gives a parable about a rich man and Lazarus. This is just a strange, stray law here. Was Jesus like, like thinking he had all this information he had to download before his time on earth got done and he had to throw this in here while he had a moment? No, here's what's happening. The Pharisees would have heard this and their minds would have immediately gone to the Old Testament book in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 24. In this part of the law, God provided regulations for divorce for his people. And now divorce was not something that God designed amongst his people, but it was something that he recognized in a sinful, fallen world was going to exist amongst his people. But back in the days of the Old Testament law, or when the law was given, there were no societal or social safety nets for women who their husband could divorce them and then move on to another woman. And so God gave regulations that would protect, ultimately, women should their husband divorce them. And so what Jesus is saying, though, here is not Deuteronomy 24. It's actually a law stronger than Deuteronomy 24 and the conditions or the regulations that it allows for divorce, where Jesus seemingly, in verse 18, gives no room for divorce. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's giving a more demanding, a higher standard. Verse 18 is more difficult than what the Pharisees and their followers knew. And now this, I, I want to pause here. This could un, unleash a, a variety, a host of questions about how you understand marriage and divorce. And if, if, if you would like to speak with me further on this, we certainly can. But that's ultimately not the big idea of what Jesus is doing here. He's not giving a treatise on marriage. He's addressing the, the, the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. He's saying you, you fancy yourself keepers of the law, but you actually break the law that you say you keep. That's what he's saying in verse 18. And then what he's saying is, is something absolutely fascinating. Look at this. In one sense, if you consider Jesus and his regular interactions with the Pharisees, they're continually repulsed by him because they view him as this lawless rebel who does not obey God. They look at him and say, oh, he eats with prostitutes and tax collectors. He doesn't obey the, 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 the laws of which we, we have established and the means of, and, and the instructions by which somebody is a, is a good Israelite or good Jew. They are repulsed by his seemingly disobedience to God. That's on the Pharisee side. But on those who follow Jesus, 
He takes those who would follow him, and what does he regularly do for those who follow him? He lays upon them a greater command regarding righteousness and holiness than they previously knew. Isn't that strange? He's repulsed by some for his lackadaisical approach to the law. And then in others, he lays upon them commands and burdens that are greater than even what the Pharisees are keeping and what the law demands. How is this so? Well, here's how. The real, undeniable Jesus, the one who who walks in and demands to be Lord of control entirely of your life, he is repulsive to the one who only wants him to be an accessory to their life. But he is supremely beautiful to the one who finds that he is able to give him or her new life. The real Jesus will either be supremely beautiful or altogether repulsive. So now we must spend the rest of this time considering how do I process or digest between these two things. The supremely beautiful Jesus or the Jesus that I must keep away because he is asking or demanding things of me that I cannot sign up for. You know, it's wild to grasp. You read stories like this and you think, yeah, Jesus, let those Pharisees have it. They're self-made legalism. They're always crushing the little guy, putting weights and burdens upon people that they can't carry. And you want to bring it to legalism in our day. You know, Jesus, Jesus would have it out for the rule makers, the Bible beaters, the moral snobs, the crowd that would, that would seemingly be, make, 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 make demands that are far too difficult to, to make. But a more fitting application of this text requires a consideration of, what, of a far more pervasive form of legalism. It's a legalism that actually joins hearts with the Pharisees and subtly thinking, hey Jesus, I'm going to make the rules here. I'll shape what my Christian faith looks like. The hard heart that needs the hard words of Jesus is the person who has the Bible in one hand And then in the other hand says, yeah, I've got my desires, I've got my gut feeling, I've got the things that my heart wants. Okay, they might be in contradiction to what the Bible reveals in some ways, but these things weigh out. This is hard. I, I had to wrestle with this this week, okay? Think about this. If you were to survey the decisions that you have made over the last year, if you were to survey the decisions you've made over the last five years, decisions you've prayed over, how many of them ultimately led you to something that in your gut you wanted to do anyway? Think about that. You understand what I'm saying? does, Does the Christianity that you profess actually just serve as a rubber stamp for the life decisions that you want to make? Does the Christian faith that you profess ever demand something of you that you are unwilling at first glance to give? Or does the Christian faith that you profess strangely always agree with you? Does the Christian faith that you profess force you to take unpopular positions in response to friends or loved ones who reject Christ and expect you to get on board with the decisions that they make that God calls sin? Or does your Christian faith seemingly never cause conflict or disagreement with those who are not followers of Christ? 
And I can't confess, in, in our society, we are all prone to such notions. This is a cultural moment that we are in. The, the, I don't even know what to describe it. The, the psychological nature of, uh, or, the, or where we are psychologically as a people. Here's what I mean. We live in a day where offending others is, is the cardinal sin that you do not cross. Individual feelings, what I want from my life or what I feel I should do, is ultimate. It is my ultimate authority. And so where submission to an authority greater than you that demands things of you that are going to be difficult to get on board with, this is blasphemous against the spirit of our world. We are all prone to pharisaicalism that seeks to bend Jesus into what we want him to be. And the idea of receiving admonition that corrects us from God's word is blasphemous in a live your truth kind of world. Do you see that? There's a scene in Apollo 13 where the astronauts have to get the damaged space capsule. You, you know what happens in Apollo 13. Astronauts up in space, there's a big explosion. Uh-oh, we're not going to go to the moon anymore. Let's just try to get home safely, okay? So now they're trying to get home safely. And they're in this damaged space capsule. And they've got precious few resources that can kind of propel the capsule towards Earth. And they've got to get on the right track. Because if you're unfamiliar, outer space is really big. And in the grand scheme of things, Earth is really small. So it's a small target they've got to hit. But there's things messed up with the steering and the propulsion and all. It's going to be hard. So ultimately, they, they, they have this small little triangular window that as they're going to have 30 seconds where they're going to light the propulsion or whatever and go, and they have to keep Earth in that triangular window. If they don't, they're going to go wildly off course, and who knows, maybe they land and start a new colony on Neptune. But they have to keep Earth right in that triangular window to be going in the right direction here. This is a good illustration of the Christian life. Here's what I mean. To safely reach home as Christians, to faithfully follow Jesus as his disciples, we don't keep earth at the center of the window. We keep the gospel at the center of the window, centered in our perspective. And of course, by saying the gospel, I mean the life, the death, the resurrection, the current reign of Jesus over his church. But I also mean what the gospel reveals about us, the more, the more subtle layers of the gospel. Like an unpropelled capsule hurtling through space, we can easily veer off course if we don't recognize how the gospel reveals our own sinfulness, our own subtle proclivity towards disobeying God, towards telling God what we saw Adam and Eve tell God in the garden. We know you're good, but we actually think we've got a better grasp on this than you do. Oh, that rears its head with us far too often. It rears its head in me far too often. The Christian gospel stands in contrast to such a worldview that says, and it says to us that all who are in Christ are a new creation. They have a new heart. They have a new Lord. They have a new master. Now, it's possible you're hearing this and you're thinking, Stephen, you are going a little overboard here. I thought that this week. But then, I, we have to come to grips with what 19 through 31 tell us. Look at what Jesus shows us about where this kind of counterfeit Christianity ends up. If Jesus first has a hard word about our hearts, he secondly has a hard word about hell. In verse 19, Jesus begins to tell a parable or a story about a rich man whose name we don't even have and a poor man named Lazarus. 
you can kind of give a cursory glance through the first three verses of the story. The contrast between these two figures are evident upon reading. Dale Ralph Davis, who wrote a commentary on this, has shrewdly remarked that the rich man's life, as told by Jesus, could be boiled down to the following points. He wore imported underwear, he had a lot of fun, and he died and was buried. Lazarus, on the other hand, was covered with sores. He slept at the gate of the rich man, desiring to be fed from his tables, and yet only dogs came out and licked his sores. But upon his death, Lazarus was carried to Abraham's side in glory, and the rich man upon his death was buried and went to Hades, where he endured great torment. He could look across a chasm and see Lazarus at Abraham's side, but he could not journey there himself. Now, I want to make a side note. I was talking with or texting with one of you this week, okay, is this a real story? Is this a parable? And, and we don't ultimately know. I lean towards it being a parable because it's a strange picture of what awaits beyond death, namely not, not the idea of judgment and blessing. Those are very real, and that's the warning of the parable. Parables illustrate true realities. So it kind of ultimately doesn't matter if it's a parable or a story. It's communicating the same thing. But Abraham here, the seminal patriarch of, a, uh, of Israel, holding this outsized role, this position of authority, that's the thing that leads me to think it's a parable. I don't think that's a picture of what we get in heaven. But here's what I think is happening. Abraham serves as a bit of an answer for all of this rich man's self-righteousness. He thought his wealth, his blessings, all of the things that he enjoyed in life would take him to one place when in fact they took him to another. Do you think throughout his life the rich man knew that he was playing with fire? Maybe testing his luck? Or do you think he perhaps believes something, that I, something along these lines? All that I have I'm enjoying? It's evidence of God's blessing and favor upon me. His kindness has been lavished upon me. Just look at the rich feasts that I have. Just look at the health of my accounts. I make my offerings at the temple. I'm a worshiper of God. God has surely been good to me. And all this time he thought that this, his faith that he held dear was the faith of his fathers, all the way back to Abraham. And that is why I think Abraham has a central part in this story. Abraham is saying to the rich man, the faith that you had is not the faith that I delivered. It's not the faith that came from me. This man had a counterfeit faith the whole time. The bill came due and embarrassingly he got out the, 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 the results of his life, the treasure of his heart. And in order to pay his bill, he was told your faith is counterfeit. It is no good here. Why was this so? Said bluntly, said straightforward, the gospel had not gripped his heart. He had not been transformed by the grace of God. He had not received new birth. To use the language of Jesus, he had not pressed into the kingdom of God. He was an outsider who found the things of God to be a mere accessory, but he had never come to a point where he adored God. To say another way, he perhaps intellectually assented to the truths of God's Word, while his heart had not been transformed and these truths had become vividly wonderful and captivating to his soul to the point where he was able to lose it all in order to follow Christ. And let's pick up in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, 
Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And with these words, we have a vivid picture of a subject we would rather not see a topic we would avoid in proper company. Want to kill the company Christmas party this year? Bring up with somebody the reality and horrors of hell. Did you know that of all the figures in the Bible, Moses who wrote the first five books of the law, the prophets who wrote what we often think of as sweeping, uncomfortable denunciations of people? How many times do you read Old Testament prophets and you think, that's uncomfortable? Ooh, and a little squeamish reading some of the things that they write about. The Apostle Paul, who wrote almost half of our New Testament, and he was quite blunt and straightforward. Of all of these figures, do you know who in your Bible spoke more about hell than any of these figures? Jesus Christ himself. An honest engagement with the text, an honest engagement with Jesus demands that we listen to what he is saying here. For example, in this story, he references the torment, the anguish of the rich man who pleads for Lazarus, even dip his finger in water and come cool my tongue. But Abraham says it can't be done. For in his lifetime, the rich man had received his reward. Now, why would this be? Is is God being harsh? Is Jesus being harsh? Let's ask the question. Let's put it out there. Are we more cultured today and we say, okay, I'll accept some of the good things that Jesus said. He was wise in diagnosing a lot of things and a lot of ways humans work and our hearts and, and how society functions. And if, yeah, if we listened to him, we'd be a lot better off. Yeah, but he was messed up on this one concept of hell. Or is it possible that he actually knows us and knows our human condition better than we know ourselves? And he, what he diagnoses in the rich man is that the rich man actually was not a worshiper of God. He was a worshiper of a false God. And now this rich man is receiving the just punishment, the just wrath for his not worshiping alone of a false god, but entailed in worshiping a false god is necessary rebellion against the real God. And so Jesus is holding up that this rich man is receiving the reward of what his heart had worshiped. And may we all hear this as a warning to repent and turn from anything that we are worshiping or trusting in above God himself. But now the chasm is too far, the gap is too wide, the rich man is sentenced to eternal torment, never to be escaped. And understandably, his protests continue. He says in verse 27, I beg you then, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. It's possible they're still having the funeral at his father's house. Is everybody gathered there? Maybe. I have five brothers. He will warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This man recognizes he has no recourse. The clock has run out. No relief is coming. Can Lazarus just go tell my brothers? 
But Abraham draws a firm line. And this is where the strange heaviness of this text settles in. Because you could easily, if you were looking at it, you could break up verses like 14 to 18 and then 19 to 31 and be a lot cleaner to preach two sermons. But you have this steady theme of the law and the prophets through both of them. Do you see that? Remember Jesus talked about how how he fulfilled the law and the prophets and and not one iota of it will, will, will be void. And here Abraham is telling him they have Moses and the prophets. Moses is synonymous with the law. And you get it, and you say to yourself, hey, Abraham, okay, okay, the Bible's powerful, but couldn't you give him another shot? Maybe try to reach him this way. If a dead man walked in this room, we would probably listen to what he has to say. That's what the rich man's thinking. And Jesus gives this parable to give you and I a clear, unmistakable warning. Listen to the Word of God. It is not up to debate as to where the power of God lies as to what it means to know God. You must listen to His Word. You must be transformed by Him. The Word of God changes us. We do not change it. It is not optional. It is necessary. It is a precious gift for the people of God. To reject God's Word is to reject God. To have little use for the Bible is to have little use for God. And to not hear God's Word is to not hear God. The heart is not casually neutral towards God. Some could take him, some could leave him. The human heart is spiritually dead in rebellion against God. And yet God in his kindness has met us with mercy undeserved and gives us new birth through his word. This is why we keep the word of God at the absolute center of all that we do as a church. It's why I've warned against subtly moving the Bible off to the side in the name of feelings or experience or or what our own hearts desire. It's why we keep the Word of God central to the life and to the ministry of the church. I don't want to be the pastor who stands before God one day and sees some people who were in the church I pastored across that chasm and I say, yeah, I didn't think they needed Moses and the prophets. We don't want to give attractive It's easy to package Christianity or spirituality in a way that subtly loses the power of God. And the bill comes due and you've been off course the whole time. So you have the hardness of health, the hardness of hearts. What can break through? Can anything break through? You might be sitting there, Stephen, please, something must break through. Jesus is able to soften hard hearts partially because he endured hell himself. You look at the heart of the gospel, you look at the fact that Jesus himself, who told this parable, would soon endure the hell of God's wrath as he endured the cross. And so when you look at this fact, when you gaze upon the beauty of a king who not only warned of hell, but endured his own hell, in your place and my place for our sins, when you see the reality of that, the equation changes. When you realize that Jesus has endured the hell that you deserve, your heart then can be softened, perhaps for the first time, in seeing that yes, He is not safe in His demands, but He is abundantly good. And this is what I offer to you. If, if, if this parable has, has, has rattled your cage, 
I encourage you to hear it. And I encourage you to hear the voice of the one who shares it. And I encourage you to look at what he did that you and I might escape hell. That through his cross we might live. And I encourage you, if this is something you're wrestling over, I would love to speak with you after our service today. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Are you willing to receive the hard words of Jesus? The righteous hardness of Jesus is actually the humbling our hearts need.